there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. You're listening to Rights for Festivals, where we bring the best sessions from the brightest writing festivals from around regional New South Wales and beyond direct to your ears. Made possible by the support of Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales. We are very proud to present the first ever Story Fest 2019 held in Milton. Rights for Festivals and Storyfest would like to give a huge thanks to the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group, who have generously provided permission for us to use their traditional welcome to country as our theme music for this podcast. We are honoured to have the privilege. Thank you. In this session, Meredith Jaffe talks to Jane Caro about her book, Accidental Feminists. Good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely to see a packed room. I love a packed room. In case you haven't figured it out yet, my name is Meredith Jaffe and I am the Festival Director for StoryFest. Is everyone having a fabulous time? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to a very special In Conversation with a dear festival friend of mine, Jane Caro, when we'll be diving deep into her new book, Accidental Feminists. Jane Caro is an author, social commentator, columnist, speaker and broadcaster. She is passionate about many subjects, including but not limited to public education, gender equality and generally disrupting the status quo, (laughs) which she's very good at. In 2018, she was presented with the Walkley Award for Women in Leadership and this year, Only a few weeks ago, Jane was awarded an AM for significant services to broadcast media as a journalist, social commentator and author. Well done, Jane. Thank you. Thanks. So it's hardly surprising that this particular outspoken woman would write a book about a whole generation of women who have had a voice like no other generation before them. So will you please join me in welcoming... Jane here today as we discuss the ideas behind Accidental Feminists. Thank you. We shared a stage on this exact topic at Newcastle Writers Festival in April this year and I said to Jane as we were chatting about today's session, I don't want to just do a rerun of what we've already done. And fortuitously, although perhaps somewhat sadly, Life has shifted somewhat in the last few months. We had a federal election that was, um, I suppose, politely speaking, entertaining. Um, (laughs) There's been a lot that's been going on pertinent to a lot of the issues in Jane's book. So we're going to, you know, let's raise some obvious questions for me and we're going to be touching on those today. But we'll start by outlining, for those who haven't read the book, of course you will be because you'll be buying it soon and getting Jane to sign it. What do you mean by the term accidental feminists? Basically because it's the story of um, my generation, women over 50, 55. I'm 62 on Monday. Um, So uh, 
We were the generation who grew up, we were children in one world. So it was a world that was still very traditional in its view of what men should do and what women should do, what sort of opportunities men could have and what sort of opportunities women could have. So we were brought up really expecting that we would do what all the women throughout history had done before us. And that was basically to go to Go up, go to school for a little while, meet a spunk, as one of the women I interview in the book put it, get married, have children, and this was the kicker, live happily ever after. And because of a number of things, almost always it's technology that changes the world. Um, but So particularly, I think, because of the pill, but I also like to give a little shout-out to the tampon. Um, LAUGHTER well, just imagine what our lives would have been without that. I don't care now, of course, but I did for a very long time. Um, uh, we got opportunities. We could control our fertility and that was a real change maker in terms of how women could control their lives and their future. And because we'd outperformed men and boys in education for over a 100 years, there's nothing new about girls doing really well at school, um, we were educated, we um, now had the ability to decide if we'd have children, how many children we'd have, when we'd have them, we could start to participate in the paid workforce as well as doing everything at home. So it, we didn't mean to change the world. We didn't set out to be, um, you know, uh, flag-waving uh, bearers of women's rights. Not at all. That was not the attitude of the generation by and large, even though the women's libbers, second-wave feminism were very vocal when I was young. They weren't popular. Um, they, feminists never are, of course. That's not the point of feminism, to be popular. But... Um, it, back then they weren't either, but nevertheless, because of the pill, because of the times we were born in, because of our education, because of no-fault divorce, because of so many things that came in around the same time, free university education made a huge difference to the ability of girls to get a, 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 an education, um, we became trailblazers. My generation of women and I'd count it from about 50 to 55 on, are the first generation of women as a whole cohort to have mostly work, worked for their own money for most of their lives. That is entirely new and revolutionary, in the West anyway, and yet no one's noticed it, no one's talking about it, no one's saying, wow, look what you've done, except well, that's because no one notices whatever happens to older women. But as I am an older woman, I noticed so I decided I'd write about it. <laughs> you touched on there something that I think is very important, being one of the women of that generation too, um, and also very grateful that I don't have to worry about tampons anymore. Mm. Uh, is, or the pill. Oh, that's right. <laughs> University education. Whitlam, bless his little cotton socks, gave us a gift like no other gift. Let's talk about what happened when women suddenly had access to education. Mm. Well, I, I got very annoyed, this will surprise you, with Christopher Pine on Q&A <laughs> once. Because, yeah, that's a surprising bit. Um, <laughs> because he was talking about the Whitlam reforms and free university education and he said what people don't understand is it was mostly middle-class people that took advantage of that. 
What he didn't say was that it was women who took advantage of that and particularly what were then called mature age students, which really meant anyone over 25. It was a bit like having a baby over 25 when they called you an elderly prima gravita. Do you remember that? Um, women, women are never the right age for anything, doesn't matter what we do. Um, and uh, so... Women, when that free university education came in, grabbed that opportunity with both hands and really rushed to get the education they had been denied previously because when it cost, families would make a decision, usually fathers, that what was the point in a girl going on to university because she was only going to marry and have children like every woman had done, uh, you know, with a few very honourable exceptions for millennia before her. Suddenly, when it was free, she could go. And not only did they go, they did incredibly well. And I think that gave women a huge sense of self-confidence because when I was growing up, it was still perfectly acceptable and I certainly had it said to me um, that men and boys would say to you, well, women just aren't as intelligent as men. That was a belief. I think it's still a belief. It's just you're not allowed to say it out loud. Then you could. And um, I think women absorb that. I think we do. You know, I think um, cultures, subordinate cultures do internalise a sense of inferiority and I think women had kind of bought that idea that they weren't up to that kind of stuff. And then they went to university, got the opportunity and they were terrified they wouldn't do very well so they worked incredibly hard and, of course, they nailed it because they're not less intelligent and they were highly motivated. There's nothing as motivating as a sense of injustice that you've been unfairly dealt with. And so those women really kicked it out of the park and then they went into the workplace and they were often the women who became things like uh, advisor on women or headed WGA or well and that kind of thing and got very active about childcare and all sorts of things. And so they gained and gained and gained in confidence. And that gaining confidence by those women was passed on to women like me and girls like me and to all the generations of women that are still, you know, younger. And I think that was hugely important. Although there was one slight personal disadvantage yes. to this scenario, which, there was. you know, there was I feel we need to share. Okay, yes. Um, when I when all those mature age women went to university and were um, populating the tutorials and everything, um, I was at Macquarie University and they were there. Um, a lot of people complained of my age, the 18, 19-year-olds, because these women were whooping our asses that they hated going to uni with people who reminded them of their mother. For me, it was even more tragic because my bloody mother was at university. <laughs> she did the HSC the same year I did. And, of course, she did way better than I did. Then she went to the same university as I did and med did many of the same subjects as I did. And she did way better than me all the way through. And I have to say, I'm still getting therapy. <laughs> And then we had this strange synergy where my mother did the same thing to me at New South. So there you go. The other piece of this equation is that the women, you know, are not only now able to participate in the work workforce in a more meaningful way than they had ever been able to before, but they're also now able to control their fertility. And you touched on that. And then one of the things that we probably need to talk about with that is if you want to work, it's also the planning issue, isn't it? And remember the old family planning 
organisation that you could go in and get the pill for free without your family doctor mm-hmm. looking down his, no- his nose at you. Mm. Um, so the fertility issue plays a very big part in how we're changing at this point, isn't it? Oh, it's, I think it's everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... It's still everything and we're seeing at the moment, particularly in America, a quite terrifying um, desire to turn that clock back because if you really want to take women out of the workforce and back to the way they were, then deny them access to control over their fertility is a very, very... Um, you know, uh, effective way of doing that. Um, I noticed you said, you know, when you could, we can work. One of the things that has come out of me doing the research for this book is the realisation that women don't do paid work as an add-on, as an indulgence, as a, you know, a fun thing to do. They do paid work for exactly the same reasons as everyone else does because it enables them to support themselves. And one of the things that really got me started on this whole journey was not only realising that we were the first generation of women who had ever worked for our own money for most of our lives, but that concurrently with that, women over 55 are the fastest growing group amongst the homeless. And what I wanted to look at is how could those two things be operating together? And basically it was this attitude that women wanting to work was a kind of indulgence, almost a game, rather than serious contribution to um, the world generally but also to their own financial security and future. And because that meant that we came in and out of the workforce, you know, we're expected to do the caring duties as well as um, everything else. So when we had children we... We came out of the workforce and then had to go back in, but we tended to go back in part-time, tended to go back in at a lower level and perhaps we left on a lower salary, obviously because we're working less hours, but also with less status. Again, if um, parents uh, are aged and frail, it's always daughters and daughters-in-law that are expected to drop everything to do the caring because caring still remains in, you know, a, a woman's job. I mean, the terrible home care agency in um, Sydney close to where I live which runs its ads in the cinema, you know, those slides for local businesses and its name is Dutiful Daughters, makes me want to throw things at the screen. (laughs) No such agency as Dutiful Sons exists, just so you know. And um, what happens to your super while you're doing all this in and out of the workforce, lower levels, so you've got time to care for others, you're not getting any. And so basically what I found out in the process of researching the book, is that women are the fastest growing group amongst the homeless, women over 55, directly as a result of putting other people's needs ahead of their own, as they were told to do, and that is shocking to me. The thorny issue in all of this for me, and I guess because I partly because I lived the experience, but I know a lot of us lived this experience, is bloody childcare. Mm. I thought it was really interesting in our recent federal election that the Labor opposition used childcare as a platform. Um, but I was also really disappointed that if we've come so far, why are we even still having a conversation of childcare as if we should all be bloody grateful for a welfare handout instead of a tax deduction like it's a, like it should be so mm-hmm. to enable us to work and pay taxes and fund a comfortable retirement? What the hell's going on here? It's this old, ancient, I would go so far as to say, um, idea that motherhood 
is a woman's whole purpose, that she is really designed to be a portal through which other human beings enter the world. And that's often a religiously driven idea. And so there is, and Australia has one of the most expensive childcare systems in the world. Um, that privatisation works so well, mm. doesn't it? Um, and, yeah, and it costs, it can cost $23,000, $24,000 a year to have a child in childcare. And indeed, my daughter, who's a teacher and has two small children, did the calculation and she worked out that if she put both her kids into childcare and full, like five days a week and went back to teaching full time, she would not only would not be, she wouldn't be earning any money, she would in fact be paying extra. So it's hard to escape the idea that making childcare very expensive and hard to access is deliberate. It is a deliberate ploy to discourage women from going into the workforce. And it works very well Mm. because if you've got to make a choice between paying the mortgage and, um, you know, going back to work, you'll often make the choice uh, not to go back to work. The problem with that is that the knock-on effect mm. over your entire working life in terms of how vulnerable you become as it compounds is, you know, really scary. On average, women retire with half the super of men and men don't have enough and fully one-third of women retire with no super at all. Um, and this is directly as a result of us basically saying staying at home looking after your children is the thing you should do and you're, you know, don't worry about it, ladies, we'll look after you. Well, sorry, every woman who's currently facing the prospect of living out of a car or is actually living out of her car is a direct indictment of the fact that they didn't look after us. They didn't. In fact, they did everything they could to make it harder and harder. Um, Childcare is a huge issue. It was uh, the Labor Party was um, doing something which is great, but not enough. Child childcare, parental leave, for example, should be a workplace entitlement rather than a welfare payment. Um, because as long as it's a welfare payment, so if you get parental leave and you get paid at the minimum wage regardless of what you've been earning, it's a welfare payment. It should be a workplace entitlement, just like long service leave and holiday pay and sick pay and those kinds of things. In the same way as whenever anyone takes time out of the workforce, the paid workforce to care for others, be it small children, elderly parents, someone with a disability, whoever it is, the taxpayer should continue to pay their superannuation for the whole time they're out of the workforce because they are doing something for the entire community. They are saving us money by keeping people out of institutions and also they are saving us money at the end of their life because they won't be dependent on welfare because they took time out to care. These are all things we could be talking about. But the weird thing is, Meredith, that although women... And not only taxpayers themselves, but also gave birth to every taxpayer who has ever lived. (laughs) We begrudge any money from the tax system to women. The um, tax cuts that are basically the only policy that anyone knows about that the Liberal government put forward in the election are disproportionately going to men. Women are hardly going to see anything of that because they're more generous the higher the income you earn and men disproportionately earn high incomes in comparison to women. So we are hobbled coming or going. And I don't think we're angry enough about this. 
I think women should be really agitating um, for us to get our fair share of taxpayer support. We give, in Australia, we give $38 a week or thereabouts per capita to this research to people in the top uh, 20% of earners. People on Centrelink um, benefits get $6 a week from the taxpayer. So it's, forget your super, you know, your self-funded retirees, they're getting a shitload of benefit from the tax system. The people at the bottom end of it, and particularly women, are not getting anything like it. This all needs to change. We need root and branch change of the way we do our tax system. Ain't happening in the next three years, though. No. And I thought that was another thing that came out of that election that was interesting was the public reaction to Tanya Plibersek deciding she was not put her hat in the ring for the leadership. And, uh, you know, and she had you know, her valid reasons for doing so. Mm-hmm. She has served this country for a long, long time and many would argue well. Um, what, what, what's your take on what that story was behind the Tanya Plibersek decision? Well, I think, to be honest with you, when you look at the kind of demands we make on leaders, political leaders, yes, but all sorts of leaders. We've made it. I mean, my my father, um, when I was young, he was the, um, they called it managing director then, now they call it CEO, of a large multinational company. And he was almost always home by 6.30 at night. The interesting thing is, is it a coincidence? I don't know. As soon as women started coming into the workforce in numbers, working hours got longer and longer and longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. And so there became always this conflict between who's looking after the children, who's going to be there for them, who's got the... And it's not just being there physically, it's having the mental and emotional energy to do the work of parenting. And Tanya has obviously and sensibly decided that she still has, like I think her youngest child is only eight, that she can't take on leading the Labor Party, being the opposition leader and be any kind of adequate parent to her child. Now, the thing about that is, if you can't be an adequate mother to your child, you can't be an adequate father either. And the, we let fathers off the hook. We, we, we lump it all onto mothers and say, you know, you've got to do all this parenting because men, frankly, are not. Yes, I know, hashtag not all men. There are honourable exceptions. But we're talking, you know, statistical realities here. Um, and I've got the statistics in the book. Um, but we need, you know, so I can understand a woman looking at her family, looking at what her husband does and thinking to herself, we'll fall apart. Mm. But the other interesting thing I thought was is that I heard someone in the media say, well, she's missed the boat, that's it, she'll never get to be leader. And go, she's in her bloody 40s. Oh. You know, it was all right to have these 70-year-old men running countries, but suddenly a woman who says, oh, look, I'm just going to not do it for 10 years while, the, while I get the kids all off to uni or whatever, suddenly she's missed the boat? Oh, well, he's hoping. Um <laughs> I, I, yeah, look, this, this is the thing that does strike me about, and particularly when I did the research for the book, women are never the right age. Um, when we, for the workforce, when we leave work, or leave school and go out to work, we are considered to be um, too fertile. We could get pregnant at any minute. So why would you invest <laughs> money 
in these people who are going to get pregnant. The fact that men leave jobs more frequently than women do um, seems not to impact on that consideration. So you're always looked at with suspicion when you're a young woman, any minute now. And particularly if you're married and all that kind of stuff, they just start counting the days from the wedding. Well, they used to ask you. Yeah, well, yeah. I got when you would go it. for jobs, they used to ask you, when are you planning to have a family? Like, you know, I mean, right. it's illegal now, but I know for a fact people still asked you. Oh, yes, and they still, they're still doing the mental calculation yeah, yeah, yeah. whether they're allowed to or not. Um, and then, of course, you do have children and so you go out of the workforce like I was explaining before. And then probably around about your just a bit older than Tanya, say 50-ish, your children, if you've had them, are more or less grown. They're pretty independent. They don't need you anymore or they certainly don't want you anymore, so you may as well accept that with great relief and delight. Um, and then you, so, and you've got your education, you've got wisdom, you've got experience, you've been around the block a few times, you know what's what, you've been in the workforce, you've been out of the workforce, you've been back in the workforce, et cetera, et cetera, and you may have just gone through menopause. And there's simply no downside to the no periods, no risk of getting pregnant. Yes, I know you, menopause can be horrible for some women, but the no periods thing, sorry, that's just good. Um, uh, and so you've got a burst of energy. You Suddenly in your early 50s you can do what you want to do. But do you know what the average age of retirement for women in Australia is at the moment? I use this because I think most of it's not voluntary. It's 52 it's 52. And that means that just when you get to that point where you're already willing and able, you've got no responsibilities, you could, you know, your husband either can look after himself or should look after himself or he isn't your husband anymore. Um, <laughs> they tell you you're too old. And I remember when I got to, I remember thinking, when was I the right age in the workforce? When was that day? Because I missed it. I didn't know that that was the day that you know, I was the right age for a nanosecond. And um, that I think that this, this is hugely problematic and this is to do with the fact that we still regard the ideal worker as a man with a wife at home looking after his family. And we have to change that and we also have to change the fact that you know, when, when I was um, first going into the workforce, and I'm sure this was similar for you and lots of women in the audience, there was all these headlines about, can women have it all? Do you remember that? Yep. And by all, what they meant was a family and a reasonably interesting job that paid you a decent wage. That apparently for women was all greedy, greedy women wanting it all. But if you think about what men just expected as like point of entry for life... That's what they expected. And no one thought they were after it all or being greedy or anything like that. It was women somehow for whom this was illegitimate. And I still think we have that attitude. But the problem is we, we have done nothing to make sure we have these two contradictory ideas. We have caring is a woman's first responsibility. She should stay home and look after people who need care. And if she doesn't, she's a bad person. And then we have this other contradictory neoliberal idea. Everybody should take responsibility for themselves. And if you end up poor, that's because you made bad choices and you're a failure and you deserve what you get. And those two things are literally smashing into each other in my generation of women's as they age. But your daughter Polly's also writing about this because, I mean, I think anyone who's raised children knows that the problem is if we all keeled over, 
you know, probably from overwork (laughs) or stress, that the husband would have to get a nanny and a housekeeper to do the same things that we were doing. And this is ignoring our job. Yeah. Because we're doing the same, if not more, housework. If you read Annabelle's Crab's book, Wife Drought, in fact, I don't know if it's guilt, but women who earn excessively good money and have great powerful careers actually do the same amount of housework or more as they did when they weren't in high-power careers. So they come home and scrub bathrooms because they feel guilty for being the major breadwinner. I mean, where does this equation stop going around and around in circles? Women step up. Yeah. Uh, And that's what I think. I think if I think about the last 50 years, if you think about women over the last 50 years, they have just changed beyond all recognition. What they expect out of life, how they speak, how they dress, you know, um, the, the, the fact that they no longer are as easily shamed as I think our grandmothers were um, and that we, you know, we've gotten in touch thanks to Hash Me Too with our anger for the first time is really important. So women have changed enormously. But really men haven't changed very much. Some men have and that's absolutely wonderful. But most men really haven't. I would say the men of my generation with honourable exceptions, have just kind of gone, oh, when are they going to get over this and go back to the way they were? Um, and we're not getting over it and we're not going back the way we were. And so it's time now for, I think, men to recognise and accept that there are three basic things that adults need to do in the world. The first is earn money so they can support themselves. The second is care for people who need care. And the third is Housework, maintenance, looking after the abode you live in, the garden, whatever it is, all those things need to be done. And it's not fair that men just do one and women get to do three. We all need to do three and share it between us and not have this weird demarcation about men's work and women's work and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think not only is that obviously going to be a benefit to women, but it would be a benefit to men too and it would enable everybody in the population to start to say to employers, we're not going to work those ridiculous hours. I mean, what we have at the moment, which is just stupid, is we've got young people in particular, often those with families, so overemployed, so working incredibly long hours, running around trying to look after small children, cobbling it all together, absolutely exhausted, and we've also got a whole cohort of older people, both men and women, who are chronically underemployed, mm-hmm. who can't get work, who are longing to do work, who would love to be in the paid workforce, who've got lots of skills and energy. And we somehow we seem to be incapable of putting those two things together. Mm-hmm. And surely that's not beyond the realms of possibility that we could work out a way that particularly young men don't feel they have to work from seven in the morning until seven or eight at night routinely to be considered employable. That's not good for them. It's not good for their partners and it's certainly not good for their children. Surely we could change that. Well, one of the ways that we've talked about before that we, you know, that you're a big fan of um, is the quota system. Oh, yes. um, and I was quite pleased that ScoMo, you know, how good is this country, eh? How good is Australia? How good is Australia? Well, it's great if you're not over 55 and living out of your car. (laughs) Actually seem to have managed to be able to count now and seem to have managed to put, like, more women in the Cabinet. Well, I think an awful lot of the blokes left, didn't they? Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
But on a serious note, why? What's the argument for quotas? Okay, I will give you the argument for quotas. There are really a number of reasons that I think make it an absolute ironclad case. The first reason is we won't get change without it. Um, and we can see what's happened in the last 50 years. We've gotten a certain amount of change, but it's incredibly slow and hard and difficult. Um, basically, you can change people's attitudes without changing their behaviour, and I think that's what we've done. Everyone would agree we should have more women in positions of power, but no one actually does anything to make sure that that happens. So the classic example in, and I come out of the advertising industry, is random breath testing is the classic example of how you then you change attitudes for decades. There were campaigns that said don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive. We changed attitudes. You go to focus groups, you'd say to people, should you drink and drive? Oh, no, you shouldn't drink and drive. Do you drink and drive? Oh, yes, I do drink and drive. <laughs> Those of you my age will remember doing just that. Um, and it was random breath testing that changed people's behaviour because there was consequences possible bad consequences if you did it. And it worked. People very rarely drink and drive now. That's the way you change behaviour. There has to be some sort of actual consequence and a quota is a way of changing behaviour. That's the only way you do it. So that's the first reason. The second reason is we have heaps and heaps of quotas already. Do you remember when Barnaby Joyce was the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia? Now, there may be some people who think he got there on merit, but he actually got there because he was at that time the leader of the National Party. And the leader of the National Party, if a Liberal government is in power, is always the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Currently, our Deputy Prime Minister is a man called, anyone know his name? Michael? Mike McCormack. Yeah. Yes, he's an incredibly bright star. Um, <laughs> And um, though he's dimmed a little at the moment. But he's there and so is Barnaby before him because of a quota. That is a quota, people. Now, most in the Cabinet, there are heaps of quotas. They have to have X number of people from different states in the Cabinet. They have to have people from different Malcolm Turnbull factions in the Cabinet to assuage the groups that are around in parties, both Labor and Liberal. In lots of boards, they will have things like we need to have interstate directors or they will have things like we need to have staff representation. Quotas, 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 quotas. And no one turns a hair. Do you think Barnaby Joyce felt offended that he wasn't Deputy Prime Minister on merit? <laughs> I don't think he knows what merit is, so that would be hard for him. But... The only people in society apparently who may not have quotas are women. Why? It doesn't make any sense. Everyone else benefits from them. Why are we the only people who have to get ahead on merit? Frankly, look at the people who lead us hand on heart. Do you reckon they got there on merit? <laughs> and the third reason, and this is the absolute clincher in my view, is... When people go on about quotas being unfair and we, want, we need a meritocracy and we need people to get ahead, forget about Barnaby Joyce, he's a pretty good argument, but this one's even better, they have completely forgotten the pesky 100% quota that operated in favour of men for about 2,000 years. Remember that one? 
where the only people who go to university were men, the only people who could vote were men, the only people who could stand for parliamentary office were men, the only people who could actually earn any money and keep it were men. All of these things existed for a very, very long time. The only people who had rights over their children were men. 100% quota for 2,000 years in every position of power and influence and wealth. Now, what are women asking for now? 30 to 40%, you know, depending on where you're at, quotas in positions of leadership. Frankly, frankly, if we were going for even Stevens, we'd say 100% for the next 2,000 years and then we'll talk. (laughs) Oh, and just a final point. When people say, well, quotas won't make any difference and they'll just – I always say to them, and you don't think that 100% quota for 2,000 years gave men a bit of a leg up? Mm. I like to watch the drum while I'm cooking dinner, which is part of my domestic duties. (laughs) And I saw a very interesting conversation recently, and I wish I could remember this wonderful South African writer's name, but she talked about weaponising women's biology. It's a fabulous term. We're seeing it, obviously, in areas of sexual violence and how we're talking about domestic violence. We're seeing it in the dramatic changes in America with abortion laws. And we're seeing it on the sporting field as well in the terrible, well, I think it's terrible, I'm being biased, terrible treatment of the South African athlete, Casta Semenya. And this is the issue of that she supposedly now has to take testosterone to undermine her unfair advantage. Who owns a woman's body? Yes, because we it does sometimes seem as if everyone but her owns it. I do muse in the book about is it because we all originally occupied part of a woman's body that we still feel we have some kind of tenant's rights? <laughs> I'm just here to tell you, once you're born, you're on your own and it's mine again. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, Yes, it should be it should be just taken as read, shouldn't it, that a woman's body is her own. But we are currently going through all this stuff about who is a woman and who isn't a woman and da 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 And my view is if you present as a woman to me, I'm happy to accept you as a woman and vice versa. It's not up to me to tell people who they should be or who they shouldn't be or how they should be referred to. It's just basic decency and courtesy to allow people to make those decisions for themselves and I'm happy to uh, be as accepting of anyone who comes along and, you know, their experiences and who they are is of interest to me and I'm really happy to take you as I find you. I am slightly worried about this new conversation which says things like you can't talk about the experiences of pregnancy or having a vagina or whatever else because not all women have them. Because I think, no, 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 for a very long time we were not allowed to talk about those experiences. And no, not everyone has those experiences. Plenty of women with all the working operational stuff don't have children. That doesn't mean you should never be allowed to talk about the experience of being a mother any more than you shouldn't be allowed to talk about the experience of choosing not to be a mother or not being able to be a mother or circumstances not being right for you. All of these are valid human experiences Um, and I don't think it's exclusionary to be talking about them. Um, And I do worry about that, that there seems to be an attempt to shut women up about their biology 
once more. And I don't want to see that happen because we had to fight very hard to get to be frank about how our bodies work and don't work. And when you make somebody's body taboo, not to be spoken of, not to be mentioned, you don't just erase bits of it, you erase them. They become invisible. It is a form of invisibility. And so, and so do I worry about that. And so do you think, therefore, I mean, we, we just sort of branded all the hashtag movement, mm. but that, that the internet as a communication tool has given women a voice that they could never have had before. Absolutely. Um, I think it is another technology that in a way has brought feminism roaring back because back in the 90s um, I, we were constantly being told, or certainly I was being told, feminism's been done. And um, mind you, the first time they used the term post-feminist was 1911. <laughs> um, and so they were always keep wanting to say, to got enough now, got enough now, are going to shut up? No, we want what you got, then we shut up. Um, uh, the problem with... I've lost my thread. We talk? We're talking about the hashtag movement oh, and, yes, and technology and, and anger. Te- it's again the technology that has brought feminism roaring back onto the agenda because prior to um, social media, if I wanted to get a story published about a woman's issue, somewhere along the line a bloke would have to say yay or nay. And a lot of the time they would say things like women have been done or we ran something about women last month and, you know, so you could, and no one's interested in reading that by which they meant them. And um, what happened when social media came along was it gave women people of colour, LGBTQI people and all sorts of other um, subordinate cultures, unmediated access to the public conversation for the first time in history. And that has changed everything, not just in the West either. The fantastic Indian women who are marching in the streets about the horrendous rapes that um, sometimes occur in those countries. I don't think there's anything new about women getting raped and abused and acid attacks and all that kind of stuff and um, burned, you know, they burn them. In India, I think what's new is that once upon a time a woman might have said this terrible thing happened, we should be much, and her family and her husband, with all the very best of intentions, said, it's not our business, you don't want to get involved, don't. And now she gets on, because they've all got smartphones, even the poorest of the poor, they get on their phones and they go, this terrible thing's happened, and the next thing you know to her friends, they're all out in the streets demonstrating and holding the police and the government to account about this behaviour. And we saw it here with Hash Me Too, which basically had millions and millions of women talking about the kind of sexual um, humiliation, harassment and downright assault that many of them had experienced in the workplace. It wasn't just about the Harvey Weinsteins of this world. It was about ordinary women talking about ordinary experiences in workplaces. And that was incredibly important. There were 80-year-old women talking about what had happened to them for the first time in their lives Um, and having to keep those kinds of secrets is corrosive. It eats away at you and it also means you hold on to the shame. The reason you are silenced about those things is because you think that to tell people it, it makes you feel ashamed that that should have happened to you, that somehow you did something to create that reality. And as soon as you see that millions and millions and millions and millions of women have experienced it, you start to think, well, no, it wasn't me that did something. This is just what happens and we've got to stop this. That's so important. That's such a big change. 
because we're taking the corru- the shame away from the person who never never deserved to carry it, who was the victim, and we're saying, actually, this doesn't belong to us. This belongs to you, those who perpetrate it, and you need to look to your behaviour. This is important not just for women. I've got two grandchildren, a little girl, uh, 14 months, little boy, three. They're the light of my life, the pair of them. Now, while I would hate anything like that to happen to my granddaughter as she grows older, it's almost worse to imagine that my grandson might grow up to do something like that. We don't want a society which makes it easy for men to behave badly. That's not a good thing. It's not good for boys to grow up in that um, atmosphere either. We want a society that says this behaviour is unacceptable because we want our sons to grow up to be the best people they can be just as much as we want our daughters to, surely. So in all of that then, is anger the right reaction? Are women right to be angry? Is it right that we're expressing this anger now? Well, I think so. Um, it certainly hasn't tipped over into violence. No. Give us half a chance. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but women by and large, I mean, there are violent women, of course, but it's not, it's not normal. That's not usual. Um, 90% of all violent crimes are perpetrated by men. More men than women are victims of violence, but almost exclusively at the hands of other men. So that's a problem. I think that the anger that is being expressed is healthy. Uh, because I think previously, if someone humiliates you or touches you inappropriately or harasses you to such an extent that you feel you have to leave, leave the workplace or literally assaults you, you will be angry. That is normal. If someone crosses those personal boundaries, anger is the normal human reaction. If you're not allowed to express anger, if anger is seen as a mark of craziness in women, or out of controlness or whatever else, or not being feminine, you will take, that anger won't go away, it exists. You will turn it in on yourself. And anger turned inwards becomes depression. It eats away at you and you start to incorporate a sense of failure and shame and it's terribly, terribly destructive to have anger turned inward. You can deal with anger in a healthy way and I think, you know, Trying to make the world a better and a safer place for boys and girls, men and women, is a healthy and appropriate way to deal with anger. And I think women have been, and women and people of colour, and particularly women of colour, I mean the angry black woman, I mean the treatment of um, uh, Serena Williams um, when she lost her temper on the tennis court was extraordinary when you think of the number of men who've lost their temper on the tennis court. Well, they used to lord them for it. Yeah, I mean... McEnroe was, you know, used in comedy sketches for losing his temper. Exactly. But, oh, and the way they drew her in those cartoons and it was just horrendous. And so you can see how they... There's this terrible fear of um, female anger and women of colour's anger is even more terrifying. Um... And I think that that was terribly destructive and we need to express our anger as all human beings need to express their emotions. But men have had the opposite problem. What we've done with our sons if we bring them up in a very traditional way is we basically cut off their ability to express any emotion except anger. Um, And anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is a response to 
being hurt or humiliated or feeling pain. It's like you stub your toe and you swear blind. Well, it's the pain you felt that makes you express the anger. So anger is secondary. When we say to little boys, you can express anger, but don't cry, don't be wussy, man up, don't be such a big girl, all those terrible things we say to little boys. What we do is every negative emotion gets transferred to anger and that's dangerous. It's dangerous for them and it's dangerous for us and everyone else. And that's because they don't have the full repertoire. I'm not as frightened of female anger because women are allowed to cry, can express negative emotions, can say I feel like a failure and and express their vulnerability. We do allow that in our society and that's a healthier way to be. We need men and women both to be able to express the full range of human emotions appropriately and in the moment. That's what being a healthy human being is. And on such a note... I've, I haven't even asked half my questions as usual. You think having had this opportunity twice, I'd get through it. It's actually your turn. And while I'm waiting for the microphone, please, because we are recording this, please ask Jane a question. I'm just going to touch on one of our favourite things. So just uh, we've got some um, volunteers around, so just put up your hand and they will come to you with a microphone. Is you, know, you, you touched on this at the beginning about these women over 50 who are becoming invisible and uh, poverty-stricken and, you know, no one can, we all know no one can survive on the New Start allowance no. at the best of times. Um, this invisibility issue for women as we age is also critical in this argument, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, ageism is alive and well and it impacts on men and women and I think men often feel it really harshly, particularly if they're white, middle-class, straight men. It can be the first time when they get to be old that they become part of a group where they're an old codger rather than themselves. It's a little less hard on women because we've always been part of a group and irrelevant and just continue and it gets a bit worse. But... Um, The invisibility thing is really quite uh, devastating, I think, and it gets worse the older you get. So if you are 60, you're invisible to a point, but if you're 80, you are not seen at all. Um, I was uh, running a a panel called Women's Voices at Newcastle Writers' Festival a few years ago and it was kind of dark like this and there was microphones and I couldn't see them all and um, we only had a short time for questions and a woman an older woman, I'd say she was in her 80s, didn't get a chance to ask a question. And she got very, very angry with me and she said, you ran that just like a man. You were only interested in hearing your own voices. You weren't interested in hearing from us. And it was, you know, it was a full-on attack, like it was a lot louder than that. And it sort of set me back. Um, But I thought about it later and I thought, I get it. You're in your 80s. No one's ever listened to you in your whole life. You are running out of time to get someone to listen to you. And a panel called Women's Voices, you didn't get to speak. And the invisibility thing for women is a silencing thing too. If you can't be seen, you can't be heard. If you can't be heard, you can't make an impact. It's a terrible, terrible thing. If you see someone who's elderly, talk to them. Look them in the eyes and talk to them. It's a beautiful point. Can I get some questions? Speaking of not silencing people, please speak up. We have a question over here, Jane. Um, okay, thank you. My question is, I teach um, at a university and my concerns, we had to ask um, some of our students under the age of 25 if they were feminists and they all said no. They do not want to be feminists because they are not real women. So (laughs) I'd just like your comments on that. Thank you. Look, 
In my experience over a fairly long life now, young women are the least likely group to identify as feminists. And the reason, there are a number of reasons for that. And one of them I totally get. And that's because they want to go out into the world believing that they will be judged according to the contents of their character rather than the contents of their knickers. They want to believe that that's true. And they are told that it is true. They're told that feminists are crazy, nasty, bitter and twisted, not real women at all, frustrated, no one fucks them, you know, that stuff. (laughs) As if that's all you live for. Um, (laughs) And so they're full of hope, and I get the being full of hope. They're also afraid of being uh, singled out and not approved of. We still bring up little girls... To, be, to think that being approved of by others is the most important thing. And if you are in a subordinate culture, of course it is, because it can be dangerous not to be approved of. And young women have no status. If you've ever seen a young woman, they have a status if they're beautiful, but only for their physical appearance. If you've ever seen a young woman, say, on a panel, and if she steps up to argue, particularly with an older man, he often, if he's Um, from the right, he'll react with disproportionate fury to her because unconsciously he expects her to defer to him automatically. And when she doesn't, he feels it as an insult, even though she's just talking to him like she would anyone. So young women are very aware of all this, maybe not consciously, but they're very aware of it. So they tread carefully. In my experience, it is always getting older and it is particularly marriage and then or partnering up and then, of course, If you do have children, motherhood, that radicalises women because that is when we realise how unequal and how unfair and how uneven the society actually is. And, of course, there is always a temptation to prefer to align yourself with the powerful than the powerless. And feminists don't have, despite all the propaganda, the power in our society and young women recognise that men do and they think, well, if I... It's the Julie Bishop career track. Worked so well for it too um, in the end. And um, it's, it's you think if I align myself to these men and please them, I will do better than if I don't. M- most of us find out that doesn't work out. We have a question from the balcony. Yes, um, my question is, um, I'm, I'm a, by the way, I'm an accidental feminist, uh, can't help it, I was born <laughs> 54 years ago, um, but um, I just wonder how pornography and Kardashians and stuff are going to sit or does sit for new generations of women. We're portrayed to believe that pornography is normal nowadays and that women are meant to be these revolting bimbos, sorry for want of a better description. Yeah, porn is a huge uh, problem. Um, I I don't think we're going to make porn go away. Um, I do think we don't deal with it well because we don't equip young people to understand it. Um, porn is no more real than a ballet. It is a performance. And we ought to be talking to young people in schools and anywhere we can, certainly at home, about the fact that it is not real. It is not how sex is. It is a fantasy. It is a performance. Um, And we're not doing that because we still have taboos 
again, religiously based often, about talking to young people honestly about human sexuality. Um, and I think porn operates in that taboo space. Um, the taboo, in a way, makes it um, uh, illicit and that's exciting and actually, you know, regular human sex is fun but pretty prosaic most of the time. Um, and we ought to be more open and honest about the way um, porn is because I don't, I don't see any way of getting rid of it. I really don't. Um, and I think it is terribly destructive to young women. I've heard of young women who are putting up with behaviours that they think they're supposed to enjoy, like being hit, like being partially strangled because it's in porn and it's presented as if the women enjoy it. Um, and that's one of the reasons we need to have a more honest and upfront conversation. It's one of the reasons why it's terribly tragic that young women haven't cottoned on to the fact that feminism is their best hope for safety. Um, the safest societies in the world are the most feminist societies in the world. The most unsafe for both men and women are those with the most rigid gender roles and gender demarcation, often theocracies. Um, so, I, yeah, and the Kardashians, I'm not so bothered by all of that. I think that female beauty will always have a currency. Um, I, I do wish we had, in the book I talk about how the Susan Sontag idea that, that men are uh, benefit because we have two versions of male beauty. There is the beauty of the boy, which is very similar to the beauty of the young girl, you know, the vivid colouring, uh, the beautiful skin, the live physical movement, all of that. So, you know, um, young men are seen as very beautiful. But we also allow for the beauty of the older man, um, uh, the, the, the Lord George Clooney's, you know, they can be beautiful. But in women we only admire the beauty of the young woman, the girl. We don't have – we're starting maybe with the Helen Mirrens yeah. to develop a little bit of a, a, an understanding that there can be beauty in older women as well. And I think that might do something about it. But there will always be shallow, silly – um, things. I mean, I don't think Kanye West and uh, some of the blokes who appear in those things are much of an advertisement for the male gender either. Um, and I'm not, I'm not as bothered by that kind of thing. We have time for one quick last question, which is coming from the top as well. Hi, thank you. I just want to know your uh, thoughts upon um, how is it on a day-to-day -day basis, can we assist women or ourselves to unapologetically step into our power and release the guilt that may be there for us so that, you know, we're not giving the men the tidy house, the cook feed and the uh, well-adjusted children every day so that they may actually step up to the plate. I think that's a really good question and it is about the confidence to say I am not your service provider. Um, and that is hard if you've been trained from birth and you saw your mother and her mother being service providers, the service, I often call us the servant gender. It takes courage. It's why feminism is important because the point of feminism, I think, is um, I changed my definition of feminism a few years ago um, to the centuries-old fight by one half of the human race to be taken seriously by the other half. Um, but also I think 
Feminism is a way women pass on courage to one another, the courage to say no, the courage to sit in a mucky, untidy house and not feel it's their responsibility to do something about it, the courage to expect that their uh, partner will provide half the meals, will uh, take responsibility for making sure the ingredients that are required for those meals are in the cupboard, um, <laughs> who will actually recognise that his side of the family is his responsibility to buy gifts for. And if he fails to buy a gift for his mother, it's him who's let her down. Little, tiny, simple, bloody oppressions like that, which you just have to say, not my job, not my mother, not my business, yours, honey bunch. Finish. We have, that's a good note to finish on. I know you want to keep going. Just one sentence. One sentence because we're on. Come on, Jane. One Go. sentence. We have made women over-responsible and men under-responsible. We just need to be equally responsible. enjoyed that session from Storyfest 2019, we'll be dropping one every month around the 19th of the month at the same time that they release their newsletter. You can go to their website www.storyfest.org.au to find out more about this awesome festival. And you can find all of the Rights for Festivals episodes covering a wide variety of amazing festivals from around regional New South Wales at the Rights for Women website www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. You can also find Rights for Festivals on Facebook at Rights for Festivals. Most importantly, if you do like this podcast, um, go on, subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and do jump in and give a rating and a review. That's how other people can find us too. You've heard it a million times before because it's true. So please do like, share, rate and review. Uh, and we really, really appreciate that support. But not only for the podcast, but for regional writing festivals everywhere. This episode of Rights for Festivals was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. <laughs>